want to dismiss our kids. How great is it that kids' ministry are ramping back up here? Praise. I'm so glad you clapped for that because now I'm going to talk to you about serving in that. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm just letting you all know up front we're off the clock a little bit tonight, so just giving you a heads up. I got a lot to say. But one of them is this, when you accept the salvation that Jesus so wonderfully gives, so freely gives through the communion that we shared together, you, not only is the Holy Spirit born inside of you, but you're born inside of a family. You're born into the family of God. And then that family finds an expression through a local church. We celebrate the gift that he has given to us, but in doing so, we're also accepting a responsibility for one another. And my challenge to you, I know that COVID is still here, but I also know that many of you share in my sentiment that, that we've got to start making some steps back. And if, you're, and if you're here, if you've been coming, then I know you believe in that too. And so my challenge to you, if you feel comfortable enough to be here, then you are comfortable enough to start serving again. If you enjoy what you're experiencing, then be a part of making it possible. So we need your help for kids' ministries to resume, for blue shirts, the welcome tent that you saw out there for the first time. We want to keep that going. It's, it's time for us to take some steps towards serving one another again. And so if that's you, if, if you're coming but you're not serving yet, then we look forward to hearing from you or you can look forward to hearing from us. Amen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Welcome to the City Life Church. We've been in this series, The Moral Dilemma. We're going to be in it for a few more weeks. Uh, this is an important one, obviously, because of the announcements today and then what we're going to be dealing with for the next few weeks. So I, I want to open with this statement. One of the reasons there is so much discord amongst Christians due to political strife is because citizenship is misplaced. One of the reasons there's so much discord among Christians due to political strife is because citizenship is misplaced. Ephesians 3.20, these notes are online, as always. We're going to cover some textual ground tonight, so if you don't keep up with the notes, you can always download it later. Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Ephesians 2.19, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. That's a biblical term for everybody who's not Jewish. What does it say? You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Hebrews eleven fifteen to 16. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. Right? Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter. But they are looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And if he has prepared a city for us, it is because he expects us to be citizens of that place long before we get there. Misplaced citizenship poses for you and I a great risk. 
The reason why we experience so much political discord because of misplaced citizenship, listen to me, is because the dominant, the dominant culture that you associate with is instructive and in how you live your life and view your world. And the citizenship that you embrace most prominently has the biggest impact and is the most instructive culture that you have. There's a list that's going to come up on the screen. This comes from Bruce Molina, a book I read years ago, The New Testament World. And he lists six things that are cultural cues or the six things that, that identify culture for us. There's perception. That's the one I would say that has the least self-evidencing quality. Every culture has perceptions. I would say in America we have a perception of abundance. You with me? Is that we just we we believe that it, it's there's there's always more of everything. That's part of Western culture. You want to break that? You go on a mission trip. Everybody should go to a third world country on a mission trip at least once in your life. We have we, all kinds, right, of Western, and that's just talking about Western culture. All, there's all kinds of groups that give us culture perception. There's feeling how you should feel in certain situations. There's acting how you should act in response to certain situations. There is believing things that you hold to be timeless truth. Admiring and striving, what you should admire and things you should strive for. These are the six basis of cultural cues. I hope these are familiar to you because these six things are the themes of the foundations of the teachings of Jesus Christ. If you want to outline the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you can outline it through these six things. Jesus had a lot to say about our perceptions. He had a lot to say about timeless truth. He had a lot to say about how we should act, how we should feel, what we should admire, and what we should strive for in this life. If Jesus is not the one that are defining these six things for you above all else, then your citizenship is misplaced. And when your citizenship is misplaced, you will find yourself in conflict with him and oftentimes with one another. I want to show you this diagram. This is a picture of you and I at salvation. This is a picture of you and I when we come to Christ. We carry with us into that relationship all the things that we've been actively taught or just things that we have perceived through the world that we were immersed in, the family that you grew up in, the socioeconomic class that you're a part of, the ethnicity that you have, the state or commonwealth. You with me? All of those things are working together and they form in you a culture. And we bring that with us when we make a vow of devotion to Christ. Interestingly, all of us overlap in some measure with the culture of the kingdom of heaven. All of us have some basis of morality. We talked about this recently. This idea of a universal morality. Every person who comes to Christ, some overlapping more than others, but every person, when they come to Christ, overlaps with the culture of the kingdom of heaven to some degree. Now let's look at the next diagram. This is where we're supposed to end up. Is you and I should embrace all of the culture of the kingdom of heaven at the exclusion of everything else that is secular culture that is in conflict with him. This is what we're supposed to... Now, none of us are ever going to get here all the way. You're tracking with me? Because none of us are ever going to be perfect. 
But what we're working towards in this life, part of this journey of discipleship, is that we're supposed to be defined more and more by the culture of the kingdom of heaven and willing to lay down and set aside everything that every other group tries to give us that is in conflict with Christ. Not not every secular cultural norm is in conflict with Jesus. We only have so much time tonight, so I'm just focusing on this one concept, this one idea. We've, We've got to abandon the things that are the antithesis of the culture of the kingdom of heaven. If any secular cultural norm tries to define me in some way by way of perception, believing, acting, feeling, striving, and admiring that is in conflict with Christ, we have a decision that we must make. And the Holy Spirit is always saying to you and I, put that one down and pick this one up. And our circle is supposed to get more and more like that of Jesus and less and less like that of the world What you will find as you study, especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus' most strenuous conversations with the disciples were all about cultural conflict. Him trying to help them to understand that things that they had embraced as a culture because of their ethnicity that they assumed were a part of of the culture of the kingdom of heaven, but they were misled and they were confused and Jesus was constantly trying to redirect them. It is not easy for us to be redirected culturally. It's hard because they're so ingrained in us. And I want to talk to you tonight about three specific consequences that if you have a misplaced citizenship, or if you are resisting the cultural change that Jesus is trying to bring about in you, that you risk a destiny derailed, you risk miracles missed, and you risk rest relinquished. And we're going to work through each of those individually tonight. Somebody say destiny derailed. Destiny derailed. I call, call this the Barzillai factor. The Barzillai factor. I'm going to be reading out of Nehemiah 7, 63. To 65. It says, three families of priests, Hobiah, Hekaz, and Barzillai also return. Now this is, just to give you a little, this is the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the wall, if you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, but they're not just rebuilding the wall, they're rebuilding the wall so they can reestablish the city. In order for the city to thrive, there must be a spiritual center. So the work of rebuilding the temple has already begun, but the temple serves no purpose if there's not priests to minister there. So here we are, they're beginning to pull back in people who were set aside in the nation of Israel to function as priests, as spiritual leaders. This Barzillai, it said, had married a woman who was a descendant of Barzillai of Gilead. Listen to what it said. He had taken her family name. So we understand, right, a common cultural practice in America, and so it has been in every culture from the beginning of time, that when Two people become married. A woman will leave her family name, and typically, although there are some exceptions, right? But the norm is, right? It's interesting. It's cross-cultural. All throughout time in history, that she leaves her name and picks up the husband's name. Listen to this. But he had taken her name. And they searched for their names in the genealogical records, but they were not found, so they were disqualified from serving as priests. 
So I want to point out two things here when we look at the Barzillai factor. One is this. There was a Mesopotamian cultural practice. It was not a Jewish practice. It was a secular practice of the culture in which they were immersed that a father who had no sons could arrange a marriage for a daughter and the husband would take the daughter's name so the sons would further their line. Right? It's, that's a noble thing. It means that there's a family and they just have daughters and, 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 and the father or the husband who has the children, he's the last heir. And, and they want their family name to continue on. So he finds someone who was willing to marry one of his daughters who would take their name so their descendants could continue on. Noble practice. The problem with Barzillai is that he was a Levite. He was a Levite. And in order to serve as a Levite, you had to be able to be identified as a Levite. And in order to be identified as a Levite, that there was a strict genealogical process to prove that you could serve as a priest. Now, we might say, well, that's a little strict of a tradition, but when we understand the significance of the Levitical rite of the priesthood, I think it becomes clear. You see, when we read through the story of the Exodus, we understand that when the death angel of the final plague came through, it passed over, which gives us Passover, which is a prophetic, right, coming of the sacrifice of Christ, which we celebrate tonight in communion, that that the the blood of the lamb is placed on the doorpost and so that the death angel would pass over. So that the firstborn of everyone who had the blood on their doorpost, they were spared because the death angel passed over. But people forget that that moment of sacrifice and that moment of Passover was just for those people in that moment. That act of sacrifice for the lamb so the so that the firstborn would be redeemed, was not passed on for generation to generation. As you continue to read in the Bible, that was part of the purpose of the Levites. The Levites were a living sacrifice. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Romans 12. A prophetic story of what it would mean to be a devoted follower of Christ. The Levites were set aside to be a living sacrifice for every generation to come until Jesus died on the cross for all. It was a sacred, spiritual moment. It wasn't just for the practical service that they did. It was for the prophetic story that God was telling that one day Jesus would come and would be the sacrifice for all. So when Barzillai, who was a Levite, stepped into this secular social tradition, he was embracing something that was secular at the expense of something spiritual. And so now he can no longer serve as a Levite. He is disqualified because they can't prove who he is. And not only does it rob him of his destiny, but his sons who are born after him are not born in the tribe of Levi. These are important stories for us in Scripture. Because when I allow my earthly culture to displace my kingdom culture, my divine purpose is at risk. I'm going to read that part again. When I allow my earthly culture to displace my kingdom culture, my divine purpose is at risk. 
my destiny can be derailed, eliciting a response from God, that's not why I made you. That's not why I made you. You and I have a responsibility to walk in the purposes that God has for us from the beginning of time. He created you for a reason. He created you for a purpose. Sometimes, listen to me, our desires lead us into the purposes of God. Sometimes, because we're human and we're flawed, our desires lead us away from the purposes of God. It's why we have to rely on the Holy Spirit and look to the counsel of trusted friends around us. This is a powerful moment and a powerful story where someone thought they were doing something good, thought they were doing something noble, not realizing that their destiny and and the destiny of generations to come were being derailed because they chose a cultural norm instead of making that cultural norm defer to the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to Mark 8.15. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, and of Herod. Now he's not talking about bacon here, people. Watch out, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. I was on a Zoom call not too long ago with Elam Fellowship, which is the group that we're a part of as a church, and the president of Elam Fellowship, who's preached here, who's actually from here, from Hampton, Virginia. He was talking about this verse. I made a note because I knew I was going to be preaching on this idea of culture. And he read this verse, and he said, The yeast of the Pharisees is religious tradition that is void of devotion to Christ. Right? He's saying, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Be careful. There are things that spiritual leaders are going to give to you and present them as if they are from God, and they are not. They are from their own secular cultural bias. They, they are now conflating with the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was always at work trying to re-separate those two things. It happens in religious communities, and it still does today. But this is the point that I thought was interesting where Pastor Chris shared. See, I've always lumped the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod together. In some translations, it says the yeast of the Herodians. But he's, he was teaching, he said, no, these are two separate things. See, the yeast of the Pharisees is religious tradition Right? That, that, that is, is being, it's cultural norms that are being brought into the church. Listen to this. He says the prophetic metaphor of the Herodians is political culture finding its way into the church because the Herodians were a governmental dynasty. And I thought, wow, how many of us today have the yeast of Pharisees and the yeast of Herodians, trying to intermingle them in to the bread of life. Because the only yeast that should be in the bread of life is the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And if I don't identify as a citizen citizen of heaven above all else, I'm telling you there will be yeast that will work its way in. And if we're, not, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can miss the destiny that we were created for. 
You're, you're going you're to get into heaven because of grace. You're going you're gonna to get into heaven because you made a vow of devotion to Christ. What I don't want to hear from Jesus when I stand before him on the day of judgment is, we're glad you're here, but you didn't do what you were supposed to do while you were there. See, we, we talk, somebody said, are you preaching tonight? I said, yeah, both barrels, both barrels. We love to talk about this idea of hearing Jesus say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. We talk about that, and we all long for that. My problem with that is that we, we all presuppose that we're all doing the thing that we're supposed to do. Right? We've picked up from the assumption that we're doing what God's called us to do, and we want to hear him say, you did a good job doing what you're called. But I think there's something else. we got, we got to back that up. The, the first question should be, am, am I doing what God put me on this earth to do? Because the only way that we're going to hear well done is if we're doing the right thing. And if you got the wrong kind of yeast in your bread, you're always going to choose a path that's different from who God created you to be. And you better believe it's the same with Barzillai. There is a generational price that is paid. Parents who resist the call of God and the purposes of God on their life, I am telling you, you are not setting your children up for success. You are not setting your children up for success. You can give your children all the right do's and don'ts for morality, but if you're walking in disobedience to purpose because you got the wrong kind of yeast kneaded up into your bread... You're teaching them a way that you don't want them to understand. Number two, miracles missed. There was a price, people. Miracles missed. Miracles missed. Destiny derailed, miracles missed. Matthew 15. I, I love this story in the Bible because it's one of those stories we just can't read it fast enough because it's so terribly troubling. It's one of these stories in the Bible where when we all say we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, we, we, we put an asterisk by this one, except for that one. But we know it's not an exception, and if it's here, it's because God wanted us to have it, and if it's here, it's because it happened, just like it's written. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him, pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. Terrible condition, right? This woman is here for us. It's nothing petty here. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. We talk about the, the racial tension between Jews and Samaritans, but you might not realize it, but they had racial tension with all kinds of people, especially people from the region of Tyre and Sidon, because that's where Jezebel was from. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. Are you kidding me? Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help 
God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Help me. Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Are you kidding me? I don't know about you, but that's the point I'm walking away. Right? Oh, I'm a dog. In fact, if I'm honest with you, I hope I'm walking away. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Come on. Come on. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. And your request is granted. And her daughter was healed instantly. Whew. Somebody say, the healing of me. How many miracles have I missed in my life because I rejected the person God sent to minister to me? I'm going to read that again. How many miracles have I missed in my life because I rejected the person God sent to minister to me? We often reject people who are from a different subculture than our own. How many, how many miracles have you missed in your life because you did not like the person that God was sending to you to minister to you? We don't have time to teach everything that this story has to tell us, but I think part of the reason why Jesus treated this woman so terribly is that he was showing us what we do to others, and he was also, listen to me, showing us how we often perceive what other people are doing to us, and we get offended by it, and so we don't want what they have to offer even when God has sent them to us. I love that that God is saying here, let's not even talk about whether or not you should be offended. Because you're always going to have a reason to be offended. He's saying never let offense keep you from a desperate need being met. See, because... Look at this picture. This is really the picture of what life is like for you and I. See, there's all kinds of circles inside the circle of Jesus. Because there's all kinds of people who are devoted followers of Christ. And what we do is that we posture ourselves as if we're the ones that have the revelation of everything that the character of Christ is. And when we see someone who's a little bit different than we are, we don't assume that they're operating with an aspect of the character of Christ that's unfamiliar to us. We assume that they're operating outside the Jesus circle. And so we don't want to receive from them and we don't want to minister to them, which we're going to get to in just a minute. Because we don't see, we see them as being secular. Now again, 
We could spend hours talking about all the different variations of this. I'm just talking about the one. That you're actually operating in the care of Christ, but oftentimes so are they. And the reason why they are in conflict, it's not because either you nor them are outside of the character of Christ, is that they are presenting to you a side of Jesus that you're unfamiliar with, and you're presenting to them a side of Jesus that they're unfamiliar with. And it's not that we need to push them outside the circle, it's that our circle now needs to get bigger. Because God's showing us a side of himself through someone else. And we have an awfully hard time receiving from someone who's from a different secular subculture than ourselves. The healing of we. The healing of we. How many miracles are we missing in our community because we are resisting a cause? We resist causes from subcultures that are not our own, and in doing so, we often resist heaven as God often chooses others to champion something for him. You see, the need in this story of the Syrophoenician woman is not just that her daughter is suffering from a demonic spirit, although that is crisis enough. Jesus is trying to deal with the racial tension that exists between these two groups of people. And don't you know that this miracle isn't just supposed to be a gift to this woman and a gift to this child. It's supposed to be a gift to both Jews and the people of Tyre and Sidon to bring them to a place of racial reconciliation. See, if this woman had walked away from her miracle because of her offense, not only would she have been robbing her daughter of something and herself of something and the mother, she was robbing her community of a testimony that God was trying to turn loose. You see, because if a Syrophoenician woman's daughter could be healed by a Jewish priest, oh, come on, somebody then maybe they would begin to ask all kinds of questions that would begin to uncover secular culture that they were now conflating with religious culture. You want to choose to resist a miracle because you don't like the package that it's coming in. You you have a right to, to suffer yourself. But you do not have a right to suffer the community that you are a part in. You want to deny yourself of something, that's on you. You want to deny other people of a testimony that God is trying to work through you and around you, be careful. Because a spiritual spanking is coming. And I've had them and they're not fun. Number three. Rest relinquished. Rest, relinquished. I'm not going to read that story again in its entirety from the sake of time. Just pretend that I did. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, just rewind it and listen to it again and then come back to this point. I want to talk a little bit about from the disciples' perspective. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, 
because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my burden, the burden I give you is light. See, on that same Zoom call that I was on, Paul Johansson shared a little. I don't know, Pastor Paul, if you're watching, he's oftentimes on our live stream. It's good to have you. He is the closest thing to someone stepping up out of the Bible that you, I've ever met in my lifetime. This revelation just pours from him when he sneezes. He coughs, and I'm like, i got to write that down. He's preached here before. Never seen this either. He says, you know, in this text, Jesus talks about a rest that he gives, but then he talks about a rest that we find. He talks about the rest that, that is given in verse 28. But then in verse 29, he talks about a rest that is found. And being given a rest and finding a rest, those are two different things. He says the rest that is given is the rest of salvation. We understand that. We understand that. We teach that here at City Life. There, there, is, there is a rest that comes to us. There is a peace that we find when we embrace Christ as our Savior and we're yoked to Him. But then it says, Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. What's he talking about here? He's talking about purpose. He's talking about labor. He's talking about effort. He's talking about the work that you and I are supposed to do in the kingdom. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. It's right here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. It is a parallel verses to the teaching of this idea of come unto me. Verse 8, God has saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. It is a rest that is given. Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The rest that is given. Verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do good things that he's planned for us long ago. That's the rest that is found. For some of you here tonight, your soul is restless because you want the rest that is given, but you're putting forth no effort for the rest that is found. Some of you here tonight, there's a restlessness to your soul that is befuddling to you, it is confusing to you, it is frustrating to you, it's frustrating to people around you, how unsettled you are, but yet you are a believer in Christ, and you're confused at this restlessness that you feel because you believe in the rest that is given at salvation. But the restlessness that you feel has nothing to do with the rest that is given. It has everything to do with the rest that is found. Because you've yet to devote yourself to the work and the labor that is required of you as a devoted follower of Christ. Whether or not it's a cultural view of church and church life that has leavened the bread of life for you in the wrong way, or whether it's just that old stinking human nature that we all suffer from, 
at times for selfishness and entitlement. The culture of the kingdom of heaven is one of activity. The culture of the kingdom of heaven is one of labor. We have said here at City Life Church from the beginning, when I first came here, some 13 years ago, one of the very first things I began to tell people is we're going to make your soul sweat. We're going to make your soul sweat. We believe in a kingdom work ethic here at this church. Not because that there is work to be done, although there is, but that's secondary. It's because we believe that there is a rest that comes to you that you will only find as you labor in it. We've, we've been teaching that for years out of Hebrews 4. Never seen it here in Matthew 11. So powerful. What are you doing for your king? If you call yourself a citizen of heaven, what are you doing for your king? Stand with me. Revelation 22, 3 through 5. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. And his servants will worship him. And they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads. That's us, people. And there will be no night there. And no need for lamps or the sun. For the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus. Father, help me to see all the leaven that I've put in the bread of life that does not belong. for all the cultural norms that are a part of me because of my ethnicity all the cultural norms that are a part of me because of my socioeconomic standing all the cultural norms that are a part of me because of where I grew up and the family that I was born into the country that I proudly call home, the Commonwealth of Virginia that I proudly call home. Father, for all the cultural norms that, that, that I have brought with me into this life that I cherish as a devoted follower of Christ, forgive me for the pieces that do not belong and for the pieces that I cling to too tightly. Because I want all of my perceptions, everything that I perceive, to come through one filter and one filter alone, and that's the Holy Spirit. And I want them to reflect one thing and one thing alone, and that's the culture of the kingdom of heaven. God, when I get to heaven, I don't want it to be foreign to me because of how I lived here. When I get to heaven one day, Father, I want it to be familiar to me because of the way I live my life here, because I did not wait for a culture that you said that I can have now. For things that I believe to be true, 
for how I act in every situation and every circumstance, for the feelings that I allow to well up inside of me in response to others and situations, for the things that I strive for in this life and the things that I admire. Let it be that they would only ever be those things that come because of the culture of the kingdom of heaven. When I breathe my last, someday hopefully far, far in my future, and people are gathered in a room like this remembering me, I want to live my life in such a way that they would say above all else, he was a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If I don't have a penny to leave behind, if I've got nothing left to give of material value, let it be that I would leave a legacy of culture, the culture of the kingdom of my king, and that I would be a citizen for him above all else and forevermore. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, Amen. We'll see you next week.